The first reading is from Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you... Sorry, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he he has been good to me. The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered, up, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Good morning, everyone. Well, uh, great poet Robert Frost in 1923 wrote this beautiful poem, which I love, called Nothing Gold Can Stay. I'm going to read it out for you. Nothing Gold Can Stay. Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. We grieve even if we're not experiencing obvious or immediate suffering, we grieve because everything good is slipping away. Nothing gold can stay. But we also grieve because in life there is suffering. Sickness, injustice, loneliness, death, And the good news is that Christianity is an emotionally safe faith. Christians worship a God who responds in the emotionally perfect way in every circumstance. Think about Jesus, who showed joy at pleasing his Father in heaven, anger at religious hypocrisy, Disgust at the marginalization of the oppressed. Sadness at the death of a close friend. Anguish at his impending death on the cross. Jesus, who expresses emotion perfectly in every circumstance, he invites you and me and all of us to lament with him. To lament is to passionately show grief and sorrow 
And Christian lament is to do this with Jesus. And my sermon this morning is using Psalm 13 as a way for us to lament. About half the psalms are lament psalms, so it shows us how important lament is in the worshipping life of God's people. And so it should be an important part of our worshipping life as well. Well, how are you suffering now? We all suffer in different ways, and often it's not even obvious to others. We quietly suffer. Sometimes we're suffering and we don't even realise it. We're not acknowledging it to ourselves. We're grieving in different ways. Pain lingers in us often for decades, holding a permanent place in our heart. It can be family that causes us to grieve, difficult relationships, brothers or sisters who've let us down, divorce, parents who have let us down. This novel um, by Elizabeth Strout, My Name is Lucy Barton. Anyone read it? A couple of nods, yeah. Um, Set in a hospital room and Lucy's estranged mother shows up and this triggers a whole lot of memories and, you know, this extended conversation and, and Lucy reflects, but I think I know so well the pain we children clutch to our chests how it lasts our whole lifetime. With longing so large, you can't even weep. We hold it tight, we do, with each seizure of the beating heart. This is mine, this is mine, this is mine. What lifetime of pain are you holding close to your chest? Broken relationships? Unfulfilled desires? A feeling of being short-changed in life? The death of a close person in your life? Anger at injustice? Shame at your sin? Frustration with God at your unhealed sickness? And so we can cry out, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Suffering can cause us to experience God in, it seems like, two different ways often. One way is that in our grief, in our sadness, in our suffering, God can seem so intensely close. I've prayed with enough terminally ill Christians to have seen this up close, them say, yeah, I've only got a few weeks to live, it seems, or days, but I I sense God's love and joy and peace pouring into my heart right now. It's remarkable to see it. It's like God is pouring his elixir of love into them. But at other times, in our grief and our sorrow, God can seem silent. And in Psalm 13, this is what's going on. He's hiding his face. He's left the psalmist to wrestle with their own thoughts and unanswered questions. And he's left them to be overcome by their enemies. How long, Lord? 
It's okay to be impatient with God. It's fine to be impatient with God. If he's infinitely powerful, he should do something about my problem. Has he got something against me? Have I offended him? Am I being punished for my sin? These are all the kinds of questions we have when we're grieving. It's not that we want a timetable from God. It's not like we're expecting a date to be spoken into our ear. Or even that we necessarily want the answers. It's just that we feel and we believe that God can do something. And so the, the psalmist accuses God of neglect and uh, of not being faithful like he promised. The Psalms of Lament invite us to complain to God, to blame him for our situation. And I think God would rather us do this. He wants us to point our wrath at him rather than another person. Blaming the people around is, is what leads to cycles of abuse and, and trauma. I've known people who have, have, have had generational trauma. They can carry, they've carry around so much hurt and anger towards life in the world because of stuff that's happened in their life and in their parents' life and their family's life. And they leave a destruction, a, a relational destruction around them hurting other people. It's not their fault. God understands this cycle of abuse and trauma and so he offers to make himself the target for our wrath because he can take it. It doesn't cause him any pain. One way that we can respond sometimes to grief is to try and control things. In our Western secular culture, we've stopped believing, this is not Christians, but people who don't have a Christian faith, stop believing that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and, and, and that instead human beings are actually in control. Science and medicine has got the answers. If we just make the politicians, if they make the right policy, we'll be able to control what's going on in this world. But this is not the case. Policy, science, medicine is excellent, but can't solve all our problems. And so this leads us to get angry with our leaders or with our doctors or with the people around us when they seem to lose control. When natural disasters like bushfires hit or people inflict extreme violence on innocent bystanders or when we are randomly struck down by a chronic illness or when people let us down, we become confused and disoriented at the loss of control. The book of Ecclesiastes, it tells us that life is unpredictable and unfair. So Christians don't believe in karma. Our grief is not punishment. Suffering is unjust and disproportionate. The point is that as we lament, God wants us to cry out to him perhaps to blame him, to get angry. 
Even Jesus cried out to God and blamed God in his moment of intense physical and psychological and spiritual pain while dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only one who is constant and faithful through the grief of life is God. So let's yell at him and demand a response, which is what the psalmist does. Look at me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Grief makes us feel like we're sinking into a hole. Psalm 69 famously puts it like this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. We're sinking. So it's good to cry out to God and say, do something, please. Shine a light on my situation. Help me understand what's going on. Because the psalmist says, if you, if you don't do it, God, I'm going to die and my enemies will, will win. Feeling close to death is an awful thing. You don't wish it on anybody. You have no one else you can cling on to apart from God. And so it's good to ask God to do something. This is how we lament. We ask, we search and we knock. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And Psalm 13 is an ask, search and knock psalm. And the last two verses show us this journey, providing some hope. Because when Christians lament, we lament in the context of hope. This doesn't mean that Christians believe that all suffering has a happy ending or that God is going to solve all of our problems. Not all lament psalms do end in hope, by the way. Psalm 88 does not lend in hope <laughs> because God knows that sometimes in our lives we are overcome. Nevertheless, as we hold all of Scripture together, and trust in the whole story of God's salvation, we do have hope. One of the old dudes of Christianity, Cyprian of Carthage from the third century, he said, Christians should grieve, but not grieve like those who do not have Christ. Rather, we have hope bathed in tears. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Even if our suffering leads to death, and it will one day for all of us and for those who are close to us, we believe that Jesus has victory over death and that we are safe with him in eternity. So with our tears, we can pray what the psalmist prays in verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. But how can we rejoice in our grief? This seems like Christians like pushing it down, you know, you know the feelings down. Isn't this shallow? 
And I think the thing is, this move from sadness and anger to hope and rejoicing is a theological one. And this is the, the theological arc of the whole Bible, in fact. The whole reason Christians can lament is because we trust in God's unfailing love. It's not a posture of emptiness or hopelessness. We feel our intense grief and we, we know we are cradled in the arms of God's unfailing love. We have a heavy heart. We have a sick stomach. We have weeping eyes in the knowledge of God's goodness. The ark of Christian lament does not require you to feel happy and to forget about your pain, but you are to have hope. One thing we should know about lament and grief with hope is that God refines us. In both the Old and the New Testament, suffering and grief is described in terms of a refining fire that purifies the gold. And if we are united with Christ, we must remember that there is no sickness or violence or injustice or evil that can separate us from him. Even if we die, we remain in his love into eternity. And the thing is, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, our grief does not lead to our death. And instead, our grief does something to us. It changes us. And it's because Jesus is the perfect physician. At Jesus' baptism, it was a dove that landed on him, a sign in part, that he's a gentle saviour. You know, big, fierce, angry saviours don't have doves land on their head. So when we go to him, when we lament and weep, we do experience a comfort from him. One old Puritan wrote this, He died that he might heal our souls with, his with the medicine of his own blood. Never fear to go to God since we have such a mediator with him that is not only our friend, but our brother and husband. Let us keep us when we feel ourselves bruised. Think, if Christ be so merciful as to not break me, I will not break myself by despair. Jesus was born so that he could walk with us through the pain of the furnace of our grief. He encountered all the suffering that his that life has to offer. Then on the cross, he enters the furnace, but he enters alone with no one walking by his side. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And he's alone. And he, God allows this, allowed this to happen because Jesus was dying for us. You may sit in your pain for years. It may live inside of you in one form or another for the rest of your life. But because of God's love and his grace and his spirit living in you, you will be transformed in your pain. A few days ago, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury had a podcasts episode come out and he was interviewing the Australian rock star Nick Cave. Uh, and Nick's now 65, I think. And um, if you don't know much about him, he's very famous, got about 25 albums and um, internationally famous. And he also was a heroin addict for 20 years and he's had two sons 
die tragically, a 50, one at age 15 and one, I think, 31. And they, it was close in time when it happened, maybe three or four years apart. And also Nick Cave, he grew up in um, sort of a Christian land. He grew up in Anglican land, maybe even more precisely. He sung in the cathedral choir in Wangaratta and he went to an Anglican private school for a bit. And so he was always around the stories of Jesus growing up and he said he was drawn to the, the person of Jesus through that. And he's written this book called Faith, Hope and Carnage, which came out during... Um, COVID time, uh, no, sorry, was, was interviewed during the, the, the COVID lockdowns um, in England. So Sean O'Hagan, who's the, uh, like an Irish-UK um, journalist, interviewed um, Nick Cave about his sort of experience of spirituality and grief and, and, and creativity. I highly recommend the book. He doesn't describe himself as a Christian, but Nick Cave says he reads the Bible and goes to church most Sundays and prays. He says he's not a Christian, but he acts like one. But he also said he doubts a lot and he feels sandwiched between belief and unbelief, which I think sounds like he's not far from being a Christian if he, is, if he isn't one. One of the things he says is that he feels particularly drawn to the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is grieving and lamenting and bleeding, sweating blood, and it, and it looks like God withdraws from Jesus. Jesus cries out, God, save me from this thing that I'm about to have to do. Give me another way, and God is silent. And Nick Cave says, this is what grief is like for him, that it feels like you're abandoned. And he said that he, he was drawn to Jesus at this point. And, and and this has, like, helped him, he says, to be able to process his grief, not just the story of Garden of Gethsemane, but the whole of Scripture and, and, and experience of Christian spirituality, and that he's now able to have a sense of the transcendence and also understand other people's suffering. This is what being transformed by the furnace of grief looks like. Despite the loss, despite the pain and the grief and the suffering, the psalmist can conclude, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Friends, in your grief, in your sadness, in your loneliness, in your suffering, your tears, your despair, cry out to God, complain to him. Demand answers. Sit in your pain. Hope and know that Jesus is walking alongside you. Amen.